1: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rock. Uh, Alex Lowe here. I'm joined by Alan Dimmock and by Will Kelleher. Will and I weren't here last week. We were still in Paris for the beginning of the post Six Nations inquest into England. A week later, it's just about done. Um, the whole week of of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth against the RFU, against Eddie Jones, and, and eventually the there are a few spoke. We think that's dealt with. Don't think we need a to go again. A lot of steak
3: fruit for you lads as well by the sound There wings. was. I had a veggie
2: pasta actually on Monday. It was very nice. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> um, I can't say we dived into the culture. There were one too many nights in the Canadian sports bar and uh, probably not enough exploration of Paris's
4: cuisine. You took a hat-trick there, didn't you? I did, I
2: did <laughs> take a hat-trick. The Moose, the uh, rugby writer's favourite sports bar in in Paris, um, I was there on the Thursday night to watch West Ham win in the Europa League. We had a, a Six Nations event on Friday, and um, and then a kind of uh, a beer at, at, on Sunday night after.
4: Still uh, filing on the laptop. Still
2: <laughs> after after a tough a tough day after that England defeat and what we kind of knew was was coming next. Uh, anyway, my point was that we can we think we can part that we can move on we can look forward. We've had a premiership weekend, the Women's Six Nations has has begun. Al, what, what, what's what been on your mind, what caught your eye this weekend? Uh, hello mate, yes, uh, hello
3: everyone. Uh, yeah, It's uh, well we've reached that stage of the season where it's a bit of a whirlwind in the premiership in partic- particular. It's sort of, it's like a lava lamp, uh, teams are moving up and down and a lot of things can change. Um I suppose we'll be interested to dive into the the tic, TikTok Women's Six Nations. Uh, I still can't get my head around the idea of calling it the TikTok Six Nations. Did anyone ever read the Oz books or see the movie Return to Oz? There's a robot in it called TikTok. <laughs> no, never mind. okay. Well, uh, yeah. Niche. So niche. plenty, to, plenty to get into. But yeah, it's a, we've reached that sort of ah stage of the season.
2: Yeah, and Al- Alfie, our producer, is going to make this sound like the slickest podcast has been I can tell you dear listener that behind the scenes it's all a bit shambolic we've been here for
4: two hours already uh, and it
2: feels like the, the teams get a week off the teams get a bye week the rut carries on but every now and again it feels like we're we need we need to take a breather but the season doesn't allow it so first we'll plow into the Gallagher Premiership we will cover the TikTok Six Nations Jess Hayden will join us with the latest in the rest of the women's game and we'll have our weekly God or Goddess Award. Let's start our Premiership roundup at at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. There was a lovely line that Stuart Barnes wrote on Sunday, no doubt with Stephen Jones in mind, where he talked about uh, the new White Hart Lane being the home of serial trophy winners, at least for one weekend. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Saracens, Hello and Farrell back. Will you... You were sort of on top of this game,
4: yeah. What happened? Tell us about it. What, what caught your eye? Oh, it was interesting. So Bristol have been really struggling in the last twenty minutes of games, and so Pat Lamb came up with a, a little tactical tweak where he put four backs on the bench, including Sheedy, Piattal, Randrandra, in order to kind of arrest that slide that they're having in the last quarter. And they kind of they kind of didn't quite get there. Until the very end. Would you describe it as Spursy? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Mm. Well, but the the belting bit of it was that it had an absolute um, hero to zero moment for poor old Joe Joyce, who made an amazing break, the big Bristolian second row, 35-yard trundle, puts the pass away to the winger. It's all glory. They've won in the last play of the game against Sarri's, against all the odds, and the tactical genius has worked and it was just slightly forward. And so they had to call it back. And it was hands on knees time. And so that was brutal. But it was, it was, it was a good game. And they got 45 odd thousand in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which looked pretty cool. And I think the key thing on there is that's
2: 45,000 ticket buyers. Yes. Because yeah. when, when Ed Griffiths was at Saracens and was just determined to always go one better than Harlequins' big game and, mm-hmm. and hit 80,000, then hit 90,000 and set world records. There were free tickets galore. almost like dropped from the skies above North London. <laughs> Anyone who can rock up, they had. A, and they even had then,
3: a, there was probably a finger on the scales. Of some yeah, of the numbers. yeah, they had
2: a choir that looked about twenty thousand strong <laughs> who then all sat around the boss Like you know, the, the policy then was get people there, set records, mm. create stories. In some ways, this is a stronger story because they had forty-five thousand week after the Six Nations in this futuristic stadium, and,
4: yeah. and they all bought tickets. And the it's now a set of games that are always going to be at Tottenham for the next few seasons, which is quite a nice deal, really. And it feels like, I mean, I know Wembley's in their kind of catchment area when they've done that before, but that link with Saracens and Tottenham feels a bit more natural, maybe, doesn't it? And Tottenham's obviously an incredible stadium and they're hosting NFL and all that other stuff and there's lots of funky chat about how the pitch gets reformed and all that sort of thing, yeah. of the different sections that roll in and out. But no, it was a really good game. And um, the return of Owen Farrell, and actually it's, it's, it's interesting as well when you look at the Saracens starting 15, it was always the way, wasn't it, around this time of year, pre-salary cap saga, you look at their 23 and just go, wow, that's a pretty decent set of players and now you look at it and despite all of they've had the bench is possibly not quite as strong but they're they're 23 sorry they're 15 I think had 13 internationals and the guy that is one of the guys who isn't is Jackson Ray who's like one of their best players in yeah. the last decade or so Um and yeah Farrell was back he probably got a bit lucky about a slightly naughty high hit Um possibly not quite as bad as other ones he's done before like that famous one on Andre Esterhaisen a few years ago but um, he did alright a L- little bit clunky Max Malin scored a couple of tries which is good for him having been dropped in the last round of the Six Nations and it was actually a good game Saracens would have been absolutely um, having kittens if they'd lost it but yeah Bristol's sort of weird season kind of continues down in 10th
2: There's a few weird seasons on Then we'll, we'll probably if you take a, um, a bird's eye view of, of, of the league there's I think five teams within four points trying to get fourth place. Exeter currently in fourth place but have lost nine times this season which is remarkable. Five at home. Five at home. Leicester are now the first team to qualify for the playoffs already. Seems to be streets ahead and maybe it's Saracens you'd think are the most likely challengers, Al.
3: Well, Well, just the thing about Saracens as well is they're just, it's amazing to say quietly but they've just quietly gone about Ticking along this season And getting wet Now we'll, we can talk about Leicester Tigers And the fact that They've raced to an, an unbelievable 80 points in, in the league so far This season And we'll talk to them And uh, I think we'll Particularly focus on uh, A certain player's try scoring exploits For them But Saracens This is uh, three wins in a row I think for them now And they you know, for all the stuff about what sort of squad they'd have, and Mark Evans was on this podcast recently saying, you know, for all the the stockpiling of talent that they've done in years gone by, that actually they're still a bloody good team without needing that. And it's, it's the guys that come to the fore. We had a mention for Jackson Ray there, but it's guys like Barrington that play. That, mm-hmm. that yeah, he was that the other knock their pan and yeah. Wollstonecraft has uh, got try after try this season mm-hmm. from a for a strong rolling ball. It doesn't have to be. The big name players. That being said, obviously a lot of attention on Owen Farrell, and we'll all be keen to see how he comes ahead and and what sort of form he's in and the rustiness he's got. Maroataji, just the way he's playing at the moment, mm. it's sometimes it's just on on a stage like that in front of a crowd like that. You then see one of the one of the fine flat track bully, not flat track bully. Actually, that's that's insulting. A bullying performance from him, where he was just helping himself to ball.
4: It almost was the end of the game but because they had that extra bit which we've described with Joe Joyce it it ended up not being but there was an unbelievable turnover that he won right near the end it was so quick you almost missed it That there was a ruck on the right hand side and he just sort of bopped in almost nicked it with one hand it was ridiculous he's he had a bit of a weird six nations didn't he and maybe it's because we expect him to sort of be the nine out of ten guy every single week. He had a couple of sort of six sevens, didn't he? But then was remarkable in that Ireland game. I
2: thought Wales and Ireland. I thought he was excellent. Um I thought France. He was, back trying too hard because, you know, England were up against it. For, you know, I, I never thought England would win that game. We don't need to go back on that. But he was. He made mistakes, out of intent, if that makes sense. He was. Yeah. He was. It was one of those where he felt he had to try and try and influence everything, Um and that's more probably more of a reflection of those around him. I don't, Maybe, but he, he's, yeah, he's consistently now, and I think Eddie Jones actually made that point when Marcus Smith get the man of the match in the Wales yes, game. Yes, yes, yes. And Eddie was like, what does this Maro in you, have to do to get a man of the match? And, mm. and, and he's almost now a, a victim of the expectation that he reaches a level. And if he reaches that level, we just go, well, that's Maro, he's playing how Maro plays.
4: The interesting thing I think about Sarri's coming up now is that always in years gone by they had Champions Cup quarterfinals, semi-finals mm. and they've never really got in the way because they were just really good at playing in both but this time they've got a double, uh, a game against Breathe in a couple of weekends and I think Mark McCall was saying the other day that that's probably when they're going to get the rest period. They're always going to target this Tottenham game because it was their big showcase so they might give guys like Etoji weekend off but that might help them in the running when they've when they're trying to yeah, beat people in a home semi-final.
3: Yeah, and the, th- the thing is, is, well, firstly, Sarsons have always been good at being the team that gives rest to people now. It's because they had this massive inflated squad for so long, but I imagine that they'll still maintain that. And the thing is is that, I'm not joking when I, when I use the word quietly, I mean, I think they'll be pretty pleased as well that they're going as well as they're going, plus Leicester are streaking ahead. So a lot of attention will be on them. They're still in line to get a home semi-final. And they can sort of come up on the rails as much as you can by being such a strong team. It's it's just almost the the perfect way for them to bounce
4: back into this league. Yeah. On the the funny thing about um, just moving on to Leicester was they made a point about it on BT Sport, which is a bit of a media-y point, but it was quite funny. I thought was before the game. I think it was Sarah Elgum doing the sort of pre match interview with Steve Borthwick was asking him about the fact that if they won, they would have already guaranteed a top four finish in March, which is ridiculous. And Al mentioned there on. 80 points, which I know there's more games this year, but quite a lot of champions have never got to 80. So the fact that they're there already is ridiculous. But he was sort of doing the classic Steve Borthwick of, we're not even thinking about that. We're not even concerned about that. And Austin Healy made a funny point. He's like, are we going to get to the Premiership final and we're going to ask him if he wants to win the game? And he's like, oh, no, we're not really thinking about winning the Prem. You know, it's all just keeping it calm, like feet on the ground. There's, a, there's an occasion where you think he's got to actually admit that they're quite good at some point, doesn't he?
2: He was desperate earlier this season to dampen down all that talk and he was like we don't have we don't have the structures we don't have the the depth of the of Saracens we're not there yet and uh, and it's is all part of rebuilding the club uh, and he he was desperate for that narrative to stop because they were unbeaten for so long weren't they in, in the season and he, and he didn't I think he maybe didn't want that to invite that pressure on on the squad but like he's going to have to acknowledge at some point that, yeah. that they they are I, w- I wouldn't say they're favourites
4: to win the to win the title because I think bookies have Saris at the moment. Yeah, yeah. That,
2: I, they're top of the table, um, and it looks to me like it's it's sort of gearing up to be a mm. a Leicester Saracens final, and then and then that Leicester now may well come in. But um, you know what a great job he's done, and, and I might I might have to break my intro promise of not reflecting on England only because in the Sunday papers the RFU talked about. Eddie Jones' successor which I would say only in rugby are we talking about the successor for an England coach they don't do it in football they don't do it in cricket they don't do it in any other sport but it's happening in rugby it's happened through Eddie Jones' tenure because on day one when they appointed him in late 2015 they said one of his jobs would be to bring through the next head coach then when they gave him an extension through to 2021 the idea was he would bring through the next England coach who would then take England on I think in Eddie's mind, once Eddie done the There were a lot tour, of
3: coaches that have passed under the bridge
4: in that time as well I mean, underneath a lot, them. A lot. We counted the other day, didn't we? Was 17? 16, it was 70, 17, 16, yeah. direct assistants. So not just the like consultant guy.
2: So that that whole context explained. The RFU then said on in the Sunday papers that they wanted preferably an English coach. International experience, not necessary, although probably preferred, but also a desire to name that coach before the World Cup and the with the potential of doing what France did with Fabien mm. Galtier, of embedding him in the in the setup, which if you once you filter all those things through, like each each level removes a removes a, a Rasmus or a Joe Schmidt or or it removes an Andy Farrell because you cannot see Ireland's Andy Farrell allowing him to be named as England coach before the World Cup. You, well you tick off all the like guess who you tick them all off and you end up with Steve Borthwick
3: well it's an interesting point because on this podcast last week we had Thibaut Giroud on the head of performance for France and he was talking about how one of the reasons they got to the success that France have got is because he and Galtier were allowed to be embedded with the French team early doors to go to that first Rugby World Cup assess what was going on and really pinpoint what were the weaknesses that they needed to correct but um, it's just there's just an awful lot of layers to that but it, if you take, if you remove that, I think what we're hinting at here is that there's a certain outstanding candidate, but he's got a hell of a job on at the moment, and we've just detailed there. He's not concerned about successes or what the future. He's only taking what's coming ahead of him. Yeah. He can only think one game at a time. I my, game.
2: I think my put on it is that he's he sees a project at Leicester, and this is he's still very early stages in it.
3: It's going that, bloody well though. I wonder and it's if, going
2: crazy, but I just hmm. don't know whether for England for him he would need to do another. Another World Cup cycle in the club game. Seems quite
4: soon, doesn't it? I mean, he has been a a, a fantastic coach for them. And as he keeps telling us, um, they were the worst team in the league 18 months, two years ago. And now they're way ahead, 12 points ahead of Saracens, who are pretty good themselves. But yeah, you feel like another couple of years, if it was all ideal and we weren't so bothered about World Cup cycles and the four-year thing, would be beneficial for him and Leicester I mean Leicester are going to be livid if they lose him aren't they yeah he's overseen
2: an enormous transformation there and not just in terms of results but there have been some some really difficult decisions that he's had to make recruitment wise getting rid of players getting rid of bad apples and identifying good players he's brought in the right people around him and you know a a signing from left field in Chris Ashton who's, who's now forced his way into the team two tries the weekend he's now he's now level with with Tom Vandale as the Premiership's leading try scorer having danced around the league in the last few years in a way that you felt was, was quite a sad way for his career to, to end it felt yeah kind of not fitting in in club after club after club does this, what does it say a lot about Borthwick that he's he's hit the ground running yeah
3: certainly there's been a real sense uh, with Ashton that after he left Saracens even when he went to Toulon and did incredibly well for them with his try scoring exploits that he's always struggled to get back to that sort of environment that he felt nurtured him as well as Saracens did obviously very very famous for that Um, and you know has has had fallings out with coaches and you know as well as Quinn's passing through sale and it not quite clicking there despite you know, uh, passing through Sale, then heading to Worcester, where you'd have thought that he'd have been dedicated to to, to an awful lot of change there, and 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 didn't didn't quite come off but it it comes back to the environment that Borthwick is is raising and it's interesting point that you make about the kind of players the difficult decisions to get rid of people but you know in the same way that we would talked a couple years ago about look at the emergence of a player like Nick Tompkins in Saracens for example then you see a player like Dan Kelly at Leicester and you go bloody hell look at that player like Mm. and, and doing incredibly well in the premiership the the rise and rise and rise and rise and he's still going up for a ball Freddie Stewart exceptional stuff but there's loads of different characters like that in, in Leicester and it comes down to a certain thing of he knows what he wants and look there's a reason why there are two hookers for example that are both on seven tries scored the premiership this season from Leicester Tigers like they have a, a certain identity and it's Borthwicks
4: the uh, one thing that's like widening it out a little bit is we were talking about this a bit off air is the Prem's been a bit weird and maybe it's because um, we look away for a few weeks in the Six Nations because that's the job. But it feels like there's this sort of inexorable Leicester Saracens final that's just sort of destined to happen. And Quinn's will have plenty to say about that, I'm sure, and whoever comes fourth. But it's weird because you mentioned before, like Exeter are having one of their worst seasons for years and they're actually still fourth. And Sale have drawn three games and they've been a bit up and down and they're fifth. Gloucester will probably get given a win after that Friday cancellation against. Worcester so they'll move up above but it's it's been an odd season where the kind of middle guys are all sort of bumbling about a bit, beating each other when you've got two clear sides that are above each other and you think, especially Leicester and especially Saracens, playing at home in a home semi-final, that's a hell of a task for someone to beat them and are we just sort of going around the houses and ending up with the result we always thought we were going to get of Leicester-Saracens final. Can, can we talk about the cancellation? It feels like a Throwback
3: to amateur days. I mean, imagine anyone that's played amateur rugby listening to this. There's a a, a very similar feeling to the <laughs> idea of going. Oh, the game's been off. They can't get a team together now. This is the elite game we're talking about. I, I was saying here earlier. I wonder if any of the players from Gloucester or Worcester took the Friday night gamble like amateurs do and, <laughs> and went out on the raz, just assuming that the game was probably going to be off the next day. But what a weird thing that is to to be in 2022 and say that obviously. COVID's happening and injuries and illness, and you, whatever, you know, there's, it's very dangerous to play someone who's not a qualified front row in the front row. There, there are laws to safeguard that for a, a very good reason. But to get to 2022 and have a game that's called off because we can't get a team together, yeah, it just feels strange, mm. doesn't it?
2: And it, it, it undermines where the Premiership wants to be and what it sees itself becoming. You know, on, on the same weekend that you have Saracens selling 45,000 tickets and putting on a great spectacle in Tottenham. You have what's calling the game off because they can't get a front row, and that 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 disparity in the league and, and that that holds the league's development back. And I don't know, you know, we've got smaller squads now. There's less money around. There is COVID around, which which is a complicating factor. Although we're now out of the testing period, so unless you're ill, yeah, it shouldn't it shouldn't be a, a problem really. Could they not get anyone from? Anywhere else? to, to there to, no one play? else? I, I, I find, yeah, and, I, and that's when when you look at the Premiership, and, and on the one hand you hear people go, "It's the best league in the world." It's it's um, you know on what, on what basis do you, do you judge that? Is it the most competitive? We've got, as we've said, we've got some very good teams. We've got a, a group of sort of middling teams who are who can win on their day, and it's making it really compelling. But if if you're having games called off because you can't get enough players together in a week, where we've got the Premiership Cup coming up, which we'll mm. talk about in a minute mm. with the Technology attached to it and stuff, it just that that kind of thing shouldn't be allowed to happen in, in the Premiership,
4: yeah. Well, it's weird as well. I mean, just talking about up and down teams like, London Irish, while we've been away, have been quite quietly again, um, doing pretty well. And then they just got absolutely yeah. hammered at home by Northampton, who played really well. And there's an unbelievable try from Tom Collins. It reminded me a bit of do you remember that Marcus Smith one? He scored against Bristol in that great comeback before the yeah, season, where he's not quite sure where to go. So chips it over the top. Yeah, it was yeah, one yeah. of those, and it was just such a good finish. But yeah, you look at that, and like Northampton again. That for years under Chris Boyd, they've sort of been the sort of almost ah, not quite team, haven't they? Of if it would all to click together, they could be brilliant. But then yeah, they put forty-two twenty-two away to a London Irish. Poor old Saint Patrick's Day party game. And yeah, it's but, been- I mean,
2: there is a, there, there is something exciting about that that. You've got teams that on their day play great rugby, and the other, and so you don't know who's going to win, which is one of the great tests of of a, of a strong competition. You, you know, mm. you, you turn up on that day, and and that I guess London Irish Saints is probably the classic example in the league of two teams who, if who, they turn it on, can go and beat beat pretty much anyone, and um, and it was it was Irish who got the got the pounding this weekend. Uh, we just mentioned that the Premiership Cup is back midweek. Um, and coming up next on the Ruck, we'll discuss the trial, the technology trial that's happening in that competition, and maybe where it might take um, the television product and, and a bid to, uh, to bring new spectators into the game.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Right, Premiership Cup is back. And they've been trialing this microchip in the ball, Al where they can, it allows um, the data analysts to measure spin rate of the ball, hang time of kicks, all sorts of uh, speed of the pass. Do we need that information? Does it, does it enhance our understanding of the game? Um, And where might it, where might this be opening the door to in terms of rugby's sort of relationship with data and and I guess TV presentation? Yeah, um,
3: I find it really interesting. I think we're in the early stages now, where we don't know what we want to know yet. With this, certainly, I'm keen to know what the hang time of a kick is, because I'd love to be able to say oh, this player is so much better at keeping in the air, or look, you can see a knock, you can knock on effect, you can see the effect where that ball's higher in the air, it's more contestable. Uh, that team is there's no surprise that that team is better at winning it back, etc., or has more of a, a chance of contesting it, etc. But I suppose we need to to go through it uh, for a wee while to find out what is valuable um, and certainly I think we're going to have to be patient with it because I can foresee a future where all it takes is for it to come into the, the premiership proper and for the first big name player to go I don't know man the ball flies a little bit different when you kick it or you know because we're still debating over and over and over again artificial pitches and what effect it has Uh, you know we're always wary of change however if we can move past that and if we can decide what data is most viable to us and certainly tells a better story that is what I'd love to see translated on our TV screens because it opens it up to a bigger debate we've got at the moment about the product that we have on television and what is the right data to give people Do we give them too much information How much dumbing down do we have to do And what do we expect from pundits and commentators When we're talking about rugby Because it's it's something that Coming out the back of the Six Nations We've discussed a fair amount In terms of Who we see on television How much research have they done What do you actually want to know So I'd love to open it up to The panel here and just go is uh, if if we have access to all the information that we want to get and that we know that um, commentary teams etc want more access to tv production companies want more data we live in a perfect world where clubs are willing to open that up and that we can see heart rates of players or we can see hang time on the ball or we can see every little detail that analysts get to see with the clubs how much would you like to see that translated on the screen and if we're going to be adult about it how much should we respect uh, viewers to understand
4: certain elements of it so on that that I was watching on yesterday night so for us Sunday night the Formula One and clearly budget's ridiculous there but th- they I think in certain ways they get the balance right between showing you stuff that not showing you too much stuff that you just don't understand because it's too complicated or too confusing or it's too many numbers on the screen against other things where you say, OK, I can see why he's got a DRS zone and the back flips up and he can overtake because he's within 0.5 a second or whatever it is. And they're quite good at explaining that. But I think, Al, you've got a thing about sort of don't just use useless stats that don't tell us anything. Yeah. Like, it for example, story. sometimes... Like, so for the recent Six Nations, they had things like, what's the probability that the kicker gets the kick? And sometimes you're a bit like, I'm not sure how much that's explaining to us. Whereas if you're thinking about sensors on the ball, one thing it could help, just from the game's perspective, not even just for the telly, is things like whether the ball was grounded, whether it passed over the plane of the bar, if it's a kick that you're not quite sure about, whether it's past the plane of touch. And I'm thinking, I'm not entirely sure if this is what they're trying to do, but if you had some sort of cricket hotspot type thing, we can tell whether a ball was grounded on the back of a mall or something like that. Like for example, that Win Jones try that he scored or didn't against Italy that became quite important. If there was a way of showing, yes, definitely the ball did make contact with the ground, and digitally you can almost like remove the players, and be able to show whether it actually did touch the grass or not. That's helpful, I think. Things like heart rates and stuff are really interesting. I mean, there was a just talking about the F one, unbelievable camera angle that they've got now, which actually you can't watch for too long because it's a bit, it's sort of. You looks like you're in a washing machine, but there's a camera inside the helmet of the driver. So you had, like, Leclerc driving around a bend, and you can see how much he's looking at his mirrors and everything else, and it's quite sort of, it throws you off a bit. But you're watching that, and you, you get an immediate sense of, oh, my God, they're going 200 miles an hour around that mm-hmm. corner. So things like that are interesting, and rugby's different because you've got people tackling you and stuff, so wearable kit is quite difficult. But yeah, I think there's got to be stuff that adds doesn't it rather than just here's a whole lot of stats make make of that what you will
2: so I, I think we you know in, in general I, I, there's a there's a specialist rugby audience television rugby audience that will watch premiership on subscription television and there's there can be an assumed knowledge I think so it, so it's in some ways it's easier for I mean, we should have a, an alikin on the show or something to, to explain it from their perspective but it's I think it's easier for them to go into detail and depth than it is in front of 10 million people on bbc and itv however that doesn't mean that you have to dumb it all down on terrestrial just because there are passing viewers you you can just focus in the analysis and it's something that sam warburton did did so well for example on on bbc for i remember that that we were talking about earlier the, the wales france game and the try that france scored. just just be able to shine a light on how that was created it uh, educates people enormously I think sometimes we rely on... There's just a bank of X of stats, like a stats table that, that will come up. And not every number is relevant to every game. So it might be yep. much more valuable to have... You know, we've had Ross Hamilton on, on the pod. Have someone working to just bring up the, the stats that are particularly relevant for the way that this game is being played and help to, under, help to explain how that game is, is unfolding and why. And as a slight tangent now, before you come back on that... It's not just TV viewers that we that that they need to be focusing on. It's in stadium, mm. viewers. it's people p- paying 150 quid, 200 quid for a test match ticket, people paying 50 quid for a Premiership ticket, who know less, and under sorry, they don't know less. They are less informed than those people watching at home, and it's an area that you know, we talk about the NFL a lot. The NFL went through this period where TV coverage got so good that people were more inclined to stay at home and watch with their, with their friends around a barbecue than go to the stadium where it costs a fortune. And now you look at the, again, budgets, different, appreciate enormous screens, but they take the the paying public with them on the journey. And it was a point I made in a, after the Ireland game, actually, that Twickenham was booing the referee's decision to send off Charlie Ewell's. Um probably out of frustration that it was so early in the game. But if the referee's conversation with Ewells had been broadcast or if he'd explained it publicly, I don't think anyone could have felt cheated or shortchanged. And yet the people who are paying are being kept out of it. And stats is just as important as anything else in that, I think.
3: Yeah, and you used a very interesting phrase there as taking us on the journey because as an industry, uh, all of us need to learn how to better use stats. I've, I've seen a lot of people talk about... Oh, it's stats. I've heard coaches talk about paralysis by analysis. I've heard people say, oh, stats, rugby's too complicated to care about stats. I've heard people drown us in stats. And we've all got to go on this sort of journey. It feels very holistic, doesn't it? We all need to go on this journey together to learn how to use it better. One point I would make is that uh, in the overall debate about this, I think people forget just how hard it is to do things on live television. I mean, we can all mm. attest to sitting in here how many edits we've had to do on this podcast <laughs> because we're cracking up all the time. Um, to do it on live television, in talking to millions of people, I don't. I think we need to give an awful lot of respect for those that can marry it together. It's just about finding the right um, w- method of delivery, and it's it's okay to say that we're not quite there yet. There are people that are exceptional at it. There are people that are uh, maybe falling away. It's it's okay to say that we we can all get better as an industry. Uh, one of the things I always hear people talk about is, where's rugby's Gary Neville? You know, someone that's come in and talks to people on an, uh, knowledgeably about the game, takes them along with them, is creates and talks about narratives, but we can all relate to in a way on television and how rare that was. It's interesting. I cast my mind back to remember when Dean Ryan went on Sky Sports and it was revelatory I think that we've already had that Gary Neville moment because it was an insight into someone going this guy has just come out of elite level coaching now that was then, and the game has moved on massively since that point. But that was some that came in and went, I have up-to-date knowledge, and if you get me talking about certain issues, I can tell you what the coaches and players are talking about right now. And I just don't think we've got... I think, obviously, it's no surprise, after that, he went on to become an assistant coach with Scotland, and then he went back into coaching, and and, and now he's struggling in, in Wales. But there's, And it's not to say that he was perfect at it, but it was an example that it can be done. And you mentioned Sam Warburton. He is exceptionally good at it. And Brian O'Driscoll deserves a nod here as well And that he's, post-playing, has managed to come in there And transition very, very well It's okay to say that we can have more guys like that And that actually we can augment things with these statistics To have a better visual Because, after all, we just want to make the game more entertaining, don't we?
2: So if you tune into the Premiership Cup midweek Keep an eye on the hang time and the spin rate and and, I mean It works brilliantly in in cricket, for example If you're watching the spin bowler Rotations and you get real, a real sense of, of, of...
3: There's been enough spin rate coming out of tw- uh, Twickenham at the moment.
2: <laughs> We're not going there. We said we weren't no, going to go that. there. Uh, right, coming up next, the uh, Women's Six Nations is up and running, and Jess Hayden will join us.
5: England beat Scotland 57-5 to overtake the England men's all-time record-winning streak of 18 matches. The Red Roses are now on 19 consecutive wins. The next two records in England's sights could be reached in this campaign too. If England win their next three games, which are against Italy, Wales and Ireland, they will match New Zealand women's record of 22 matches, which was from 2001 to 2009. The Red Roses were unbeaten in 23 games between 1992 and 97, and if they can beat France on Super Saturday and take the Grand Slam, they'll match their predecessor's record. The other records of note were attendance. Both Scotland and Ireland set new records for crowds in their respective countries for women's rugby and the France-Italy game had over 13,000 fans. Since the World Rugby Union's decision to award 23 professional contracts to the women, you could say that Wales's dog days are over, yet the team still thrive on being the underdogs. Coming into the game having lost 45-0 last year, Wales were not favourites to win this match in Dublin. Yet records can be deceiving. As we heard from Wales captain Chuan Crap last week on the ruck, she said that her whole life has changed since these professional contracts, she's been able to recover and the mental support that she's had has really helped. Wales responded by coming from behind to win 27-19, which is their first Six Nations win since 2019. Yet in Ireland, the story is one about trying to regather lost cohesion. The squad are working under new head coach Greg McWilliams, with nine new faces in the squad and crucial players missing. Claire Malloy, Keira Griffin and Lindsay Pete, who are three leaders in the team, retired last autumn. But the omission of Annika Police and Cleodona Maloney instead nods to the fractured relationship between Irish rugby and the women's team. In March, Irish Rugby U-turned on their previous handling of women's rugby and instead pledged to invest a further 1 million euros per year into the team. After a letter to government ministers criticising the union was signed by 56 current and former women's players, including Mahoney and Caprice. Neither were named in the squad for this campaign, although Irish rugby say that has nothing to do with their whistleblowing and instead on form. France's stuttery start to their ultimately convincing 39-6 win against Italy will not have settled any English nerves. So, the results from round one were Scotland 5, England 57, Ireland 19, Wales 27, and finally, France 39, Italy 6.
2: Thank you, Jess. Al, there were a few things that stood out for you from the Six Nations.
3: Yeah, well, I just think... She'll be talked about an awful lot, but the performance of Marley Packer—she scored a hat trick for England, but also defensively was just savage, to be honest, and uh, very deserving for all the plaudits that she got for her performance there. She's been an absolute warrior. I think a lot of people talk about. You would never pick a fight with Marley Packer, and the way that she's she played against Scotland is exceptional. I also think it's worth giving a shout whilst we talk about England's 19 wins in a row, and if they win all the way up to France, it could get to 22, which I think is—I think it would be. I can't remember if it equals or is, is it would be a record for England women, but certainly they've had. Uh, could looking down the barrel of an exceptional run if they can maintain everything, but it's worth shouting out Emma Vassell, fifty-three consecutive tests for Scotland. That's exceptional. Like just deserves huge plaudits for that. Um, also, Sarah Byrne, the the tight head for England, the best show and go since Black Friday, I think. <laughs> uh, just dummying and going through and just bamboozling Scotland's defence and laying on a try for Infante. Just exceptional stuff. And also, just quickly on that Wales-Ireland game, you know, obviously it's the first game of the Six Nations. As Jess mentioned, there's been real turmoil in that Ireland ranks. Letters going to government and people talking about... uh, a dereliction of duty To the To the women's game there um, So I think Actually there was a surprising level Of positivity I saw For uh, How Ireland's Women came through that game They'd absolutely Hammered Wales last year But also just the way that Wales came through At the end I want to give a shout out to Donna Rose Who scored two tries Off the bench um, Donna Rose For the, for those that might not Lives in Southampton Plays for Saracens And represents Wales So you know whilst we talk about the professionalization or the c- continuing professionalization of the women's game just you know the amount of effort that players put in deserves a nod and to come off the bench just exceptional tactical play but also just a fine performance for her so it's just worth a shout out
2: well we we keep promising not to reflect on the men's six nations inquest but kind of it's impossible not to keep getting dragged back to it mainly because one of the, the big themes that we had last week was Judging the RFU by their own standards, and how they fell short of them pretty much every single time, whether it was it was an aspiration or um, or, or, or a fact, they they often fell short. And you you spotted one that was particularly relevant to the women's. Oh, game. hell
4: of a week for the blended ratio. If anyone's been <laughs> reading us in the Times last week, which I'm sure you were. Um, yeah, in the in the annual report, so the sort the thing that the RFU put together of their financial state and the, the sort of state of the union each year, they had a th- they had a thing in there on sort of I think it was page twelve if you want to look it up, um, where they talked about this great goal of being winning England, which they measured themselves about winning eighty percent of Test matches, and last year they fudged it and said they had completed it because the women had won 100% of their tests and the men it was down 70 something completed it mate <laughs> yeah exactly so they went so they managed to get to 81 and i think Eddie jones just must be delighted that simon middleton just keeps winning games because he's, he's dragging him right up there it'd be brilliant they're propping up team england <laughs> yeah team winning england is very much winning women england <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at the moment so i think the men are at Sixty-two and sixty-two percent, and there was a remarkable effort by Connor O'Shea the other day to claim the USA and Canada results for both last season and this season. So there's a hell of a lot. We're yep. talking about stats. There's a hell of a lot of massaging yep. of stats going on at Twickenham Towers. At I moment. mean,
3: their relationship
4: with maths is like my relationship with veganism. Is.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so yeah, all hail the blended ratio. Go on, the women.
2: Uh, the women's Six Nations enters round two this coming weekend. Um, France, Host Ireland, Wales against Scotland and England will look to continue their winning run away to Italy on Sunday at, at three o'clock. Uh, and so we need to round off this week's episode with God or Goddess of the Week, although I understand that you might be invoking the Mark Evans privilege, Will, and nominating a devil of yeah, the week. Yeah,
4: this is probably a bit unfair, but... Um, but. But. <laughs> Just pile in anyway. So... One of the games we didn't quite touch on in our round-up earlier was Bath-Sale. Bath going 21-7 up, then going 24-21 behind. Then Sale had a chance to win the game with the last play. Um, one of the Bath forwards got done for swimming in the line-out and Faf de Klerk had the kicking tee. He was slightly to the left of the post and shanked it and that was there for a draw. So... Poor bloke, really, but you can't be missing those. I think, what would the percentage have been on our little um, percentage probability of getting that? Probably in the 90s, I'd say. So, Faf de Klerk is my devil for not managing to kick the winning points at the wreck
3: uh, I'm going to go for... Uh, I was going to say Angel of the... <laughs> that's not what it is. its Is it's to go <laughs> um, So, Edinburgh, the first team in the URC to go with South Africa and get a win. Not only did they do that, they did that against the Sharks with a team where... You had an all-Springbok front row. You had Sia Khaleesi playing, you know, my uh, pimpy on the wing. Some big named Spring... You know, really good players. Um, Torrential... Uh, downpour down there, but Blair Kinghorn came away with two scores, and you know they were pretty good for the victory in the end on the scoreboards they were the sharks had really had the edge up front uh, a lot of people were talking about dominance from that shark scrum, but Edinburgh came away with a a good convincing win out, away from home and and Kinghorn is a guy who's been. Derided people saying Oh he's a fullback What's he doing Playing fly half They've really backed him In Edinburgh He's been the main man there And I just think he deserves A nod for his two tries Showing out in South Africa
2: One of the reasons That this has been Behind the scenes A shambolic uh, episode Is Because I was out I went to see Stormzy last night Who was unbelievable um, And I'd like to Crown him as my God of the week But what? I don't <laughs> think He would count I don't think he no. would count So it has to be Marley be Packer Marley that. Packer Uh, is my goddess of the week bigged up uh, perfectly by Al just now and uh, what an achievement that was for for the Red Roses Um, so that's it, thank you everyone for joining us, Uh, we'll be back next week for another edition of The Ruck uh, reviewing round two of the Women's Six Nations and more from the the Gallagher Premiership Uh, thank you Al, thank you Will and uh, please like and subscribe wherever you get your pod and see you in a week
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ